Hello and welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for the week of February 14th, 2018. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I will be your host as always. And I'm joined in studio by my co-podcaster, 538 sports writer Kyle Wagner. Our other regular teammate, Chris Herring, is on the other side of the globe right now, enjoying some well-deserved vacation this week. So in his stead, we will be joined once again by 538's editor-in-chief, Nate Silver. Hey, guys. Hey, Neil. Hey, I'm, I'm sorry if you were expecting Chris. I think <laughs> if you listen for 20 more seconds, we get like the credit from our sponsor for a podcast download. So, you know, but you can turn this off once you realize that Chris is not on this episode. No, no, we just got the injury replacement for All-Star Week. We're right, gonna... exactly. This is a classic <laughs> yeah. case of injury replacement during All-Star Week. And, uh, selection. Yeah. On today's show, we are going to talk all about the All-Star Game. Uh, what else could we talk about this week? Specifically, we're going to talk about what we like about the game, what we dislike about it, what should the purpose of an All-Star Game be anyway, and what we would change if we were in charge of things. Uh, we'll also bring you a significant digit on the new look Cleveland Cavaliers, very new look, uh, and the way they've been playing since the trades they pulled off last week. But first, let's go to the headlines and talk about the red-hot Utah Jazz. The Jazz are on an incredible roll right now, having won 10 consecutive games and 12 of their previous 14 games. No team has added more points onto their ELO rating over the past two weeks than Utah. They're now up to fourth place in the entire league. Yet at the same time, the Jazz are still only 10th in the Western Conference. They were nine games below 500 before they started this hot streak. According to the Elias Sports Bureau, Utah is just the third team in NBA history to put together a winning streak of at least 10 games after being at least nine games under 500 before the start of the streak. Uh, they joined the 97 Suns and the 2017 Miami Heat in that department. So, guys, what has gotten into the Jazz recently? And maybe more importantly, where was this all season before this recent run? So this is entirely, if not entirely, but actually entirely Rudy Gobert. Rudy came back on January 19th from a prolonged absence. He'd been injured in November, came back for a few games, didn't look quite right, was re-injured, uh, was out for uh, several more games, came back in the 19th, and of that, like, 12 or 14 figure, he was there for, like, 11 of them. Like, it began, like, I think they lost his first game back, or one of the first two. Uh, two losses quick, and, like, the defense didn't look quite right around him. His personal numbers hadn't quite rebounded, still haven't entirely... But, like, the number is, like, stark. If you look at where they were for um, for effective field goal percentage defense before he came back, uh, or before, like, the streak started, but essentially before he came back, they were 23rd in the league. This is, like, perennially one of the best defensive teams in the league, and they were just near the bottom. They, they were like Cleveland, basically. He comes back, and they're back since he's, since he's back, third. Wow. Um, and, I mean, that's not, like, coincidence. Rudy Gobert is, like, consistently one of the best, if not the best, defender in the league. It's he and Draymond are always way at the front in like value created on defense for you know guarding shots um, and shots total shots defended because you know good defenders like will find the ball and find the shots even if you know the offense tries to play around them. Uh, he's that good. Yeah, I mean Gobert and Draymond, we've been working on in the background lots of advanced defensive metrics and like those two, Gobert and Draymond are like gigantic outliers to the point where like. Obviously, Gobert is a limited offensive player, but like that alone is enough to make him like a top fifteen NBA player in terms of overall impact. Um, maybe not out, maybe not better than top fifteen, probably not top ten, but top fifteen or top twenty player. You also have Mitchell, I guess, was being used more sparingly at the start of the season. Um, they're also a really, really weird team um, to be basically sacrificing offense at like both the point guard and the center position 
Um, actually, his problems are kind of a little bit worse almost with Crowder being in the lineup now, although he can shoot, right? But you don't have a lot of shot creation. And so one can imagine that, like, um, over the course of a season, learning how to play that style, which is a weird, unorthodox style that people get better at it and kind of are more precise about how the rotation works, how you kind of use Donovan Mitchell and so forth. And so, you know, it might also be a thing where, I don't know if you guys have looked at this, but, like, does defense tend to prevail more over the course of a long NBA season? I don't know. You know, one can imagine that that style is quite effective over an 82-game season. If guys are motivated and well-coached, it might not be as effective in a half-court situation in the playoffs, but some combination of, like, um, Rudy Gobert and, and, and the style kind of wearing well. Yeah, and this we should also note that this was a team that really had to figure out how to play without Gordon Hayward at the start of the season also after he left. And so, you know, you saw Joe Johnson being used, you know, to kind of create offense, uh, especially before Donovan Mitchell, like you mentioned, and even somebody like Ricky Rubio kind of got his legs under him too with the team. So, yeah, it did seem like there was just this enormous hole around the playing style that they needed to play to be effective when they don't have Gobert in there as that rim protector and that backstopper i mean it's also a team that's going to have to learn how to play without rodney hood who was just mm-hmm. traded away so like this is the thing that we've gone, been going back and forth about you know volume scoring and you know your shot creation and, and whatnot and like this is obviously a team that's it's light on it right now but uh they're still succeeding without it uh to the point that uh it re-raises the question like and i've actually been pushing back on this in the last season or so of like um is like uh volume scoring like actually more valuable than like we traditionally thought it was but like the jazz are like this retrograde team of like you know uh advanced basketball stats you know 1.0 have just been like actually no we can do this with jay crowder here like we're uh just going to let him touch the ball sometimes and you know not make him feel bad about himself all the time and uh lo and behold he'll play some defense again and like he'll he'll be bouncy and you know get rebounds and steals and, and whatnot and yeah, and it will work without a traditional uh, shot creator because Ricky Rubio is magic and he can create shots for you all on his own, um, like he did for Kevin Love in Minnesota. Like I've gone over this like ad nauseum, I feel like, but a lot of what people feel like the Minnesota Kevin Love was, was Kevin Love playing next to Ricky Rubio, who can make you look a lot more creative than you actually are. Yeah, and and uh, Rodney Hood, I was actually kind of surprised uh, after the Cleveland trade, looking at his numbers in Utah this season, I didn't realize he was up to like a 28% usage rate uh, on the season, which really did speak to his role, and yet at the same time, not a very efficient player for them, so maybe in the context of a regular season, uh, at least in, in a system like Utah is playing, you can get rid of a player that you know isn't as efficient as the league average and be able to replace it maybe more creatively. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mitchell shooting 44% um, and 35% from three, um, which for guys a pretty good scorer is not great and indicates there are some limits on, on, you know, when a guy who at this point in his career is a great player is not like ready for like James Harden type usage or something, right? There is some diminishing returns. You know, you do see uh, Ingles is shooting 46% from three on five and a half attempts in 30 minutes per game. Um, you do wonder if there were a bit more scouting, if there would be tighter defense on him and or reversion to the mean. Um, because clearly, like, you know, he's the only other guy who's, like, really, like, extremely dangerous on a regular basis in that starting lineup with Hood out. So you do wonder kind of if teams would adapt to that a little bit. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, there are so many teams in the league for whom, like, a Carmelo Anthony-type player would be redundant. I'm not sure he's a great fit on Oklahoma. Like, that type of player 
high volume, medium efficiency can create shots in different ways. You know, at the three spot or something would be really valuable in, in Utah. Yeah, and we've seen so many of those types of players sort of aggregate with existing cores that already have those types of players together where, like you mentioned, they are kind of redundant. And then you have teams like Utah where, you know, Joe Ingles is playing this really great kind of all-around role where great defensive numbers, good assist rate, all these things. Still only a 15% usage, though, so maybe, you know, that those numbers would go down if they asked more of him, but he would be a great complementary player next to maybe one of those alpha scorers. Yeah, Bookie Cousins. Right, yeah, there That's you go. a weird lineup, but, like, he could go to Utah. I mean, this is also a thing where, uh, like, Joe Ingles has been doing this for a few years now. Yeah. Like, he is, he was in the mid-40s last season. He was in the high-30s before that. He's obviously a player who broke into the league a little later on because he's Australian. He was, you know, playing abroad. Yeah, or he's already 30 yeah. this season. Um, but he's he's a guy who, like, I feel like you might be able to rely on. He's 6'8". He's uh, really hard to you know, close out on, like, because he, you know, shoots well and quickly. Like, it's something that, like, I'm not sure we need to be revert- waiting for him to revert to the mean in a way that... Like is meaningfully different no, for, than like for what he's sure. Yeah, yeah, you got look in that lineup with two or three defensive or offensive zeros. Basically, you know, to shoot forty six percent on five and a half attempts a game is pretty impressive. I mean, no offense to like Kyle Korver, but like uh, as dysfunctional as the Cavs are, he is not their second best scoring option most of the time. So you know, you got to give you got to give credit where it's due for sure. Yeah, and uh, the other question with Utah is, you know, how much of this can they keep up going over the rest of the season? Uh, and according to the 538 model, they have a 90% chance of making the playoffs, even though, like we said at the top of the segment, they're 10th in the Western Conference. Uh, but what I find interesting there is that this is something that people don't always think about, but they have one of the easiest schedules in the league from here on out. I took the average ELO rating of their remaining opponents, and it's lower than every other team in the league except Philly, the Hornets, and the Warriors. Like, the Warriors need the extra help. Uh, and, and meanwhile, the other teams that they're trying to fight with for that last place uh, in, in the Western Conference playoffs, like Portland, New Orleans, Denver, the Clippers even, they have actually some of the toughest schedules in the league over the remainder of the season. So I think that's one of the big reasons where that 90% is coming from, on top of the fact that they've shot up in the in the power ratings in general to, no, like we said, number four in the league. Yeah, we should say... so. So ELO ratings really reward recent form, right? They're a measure of how well do you think you would play in a game today. And if you want to determine that question, looking at how a team has played recently, last 10 games, last 20 games, turns out to be quite relevant. Um, For playoff predictions, I think it can sometimes overshoot or undershoot because there's probably some reversion to the mean, right? It's saying like, oh, look, this version of the Jazz is our median expectation for the rest of the season. You know, that might not be true necessarily. If you're probably designing this in a, in a more complicated way, you'd say you use different K factors. It is an ELO for short-term versus long-term predictions. So I would, you know, I would discount that a little bit, but they are one of these teams in that kind of range of, you know, middle-tier teams in the Western Conference that's played well recently. Their schedule is relatively easy from this point onward. Um, they have a big, by the way, home court advantage. Huge. That's a nice little thing yeah, that we say that, account yeah. for because of their altitude. Um, and so they have some hidden hidden strengths here that, you know, I wouldn't say 90%, but I think they're probably a favorite to make the playoffs. Okay, let's leave the Jazz there for now and move on to the All-Star game. But first, Kyle, you like watching the Knicks, right, for some reason? Yes. So uh, I wanted to tell you a little bit about SeatGeek, which can be a better way to buy tickets to sports and concerts and make things less complicated and confusing when you want to see a complete dumpster fire of a team. 
SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event, whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out, or just need to find the perfect gift. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team in person, even if that team is terrible, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. And best of all, listeners to The Lab will get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code LAB today. That's L-A-B. Promo code LAB for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. The NBA All-Star break starts on Friday, and that means it's time for the league's best players to assemble in the same place at the same time and show off their skills. But one of the media's favorite pastimes around All-Star Weekend is to complain about All-Star Weekend. Is the dunk contest just a shell of what it used to be? Are all these competitions becoming stale? And why should we even play this game in the first place? Well, this being the lab, we wanted to put the All-Star Game under the microscope and blue sky a few ideas that might make the league's annual showcase better. So guys, first things first, just give me, what are your favorite things about the current format? What do you think works about the All-Star Game right now uh, as it's currently constituted? Rising Stars is consistently the best, actually, used to be consistently the best it's it's also it's taken kind of the same tenor of the the big game uh the last few years why do you think that is the the players are just playing less hard in even the rising stars game i guess i mean like it's just i i think it's just a thing that happened i, I don't have too much insight because that was like it, a so classic yeah. take right is that the 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 rising stars game is actually the real you know exciting version of the all-star game and the guys who make the real game just kind of coast through it mm-hmm um, but so yeah, that, that's number one. And like, I, I mean, my, my takes are like everyone's takes. It's the rising stars, the skills challenge, and you know, um, shooting stars. We still like that. Oh, do, do they still do that? <laughs> Either that Whatever. or two ball, right? Yeah, yeah, two ball. Yeah, I don't really like very much about the current all star format. I mean, we can talk more about like potential fixes, but for right now, it kind of falls into the uncanny valley for me, where it resembles something that would be really interesting, but is actually. Not very interesting. Maybe the Rising Stars is the closest thing to an exception for that. But you're not seeing the league's best players in the slam dunk contest or the three-point contest. And then the main game has become like an exhibition. I mean, it literally is an exhibition, but it feels like an exhibition. And like the kind of only interest is like, when will someone score 200 points? Which I think would maybe finally force the league to reconsider um, the format overall, and so I don't know. I mean, All Star games in general, man. I remember when I was a kid, and like the baseball All Star game and the and the basketball All Star game in particular were like big deals. They were big events, but like just in an era where you have access to watch whatever game you want on League Pass, and you can play with the players in NBA Two K, and you can um, see them on Twitter and everything else. And there's national discussion, and the NBA has become a very nationalized sport. Um, there's just that, not that much novelty to the all-star games. So the process of like being selected as an all-star and having that on your record is interesting. But like, and I think the NBA has done a pretty good job actually with that multi-tiered process. Um, think, but like the the weekend itself is is I don't know what you can do about it. I think yeah, definitely. Like it's it's obviously an artifact of a time when you just couldn't see all these players in one city at once because you know you could only watch but so many games on you know over-the-air TV and only go to the arena so many times. 
but yeah, like Nate said, with League Pass, with whatever else, like you can just see all the players all the time, and most of them play for the Warriors and the and the Cavs anyway. So <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, it's it's less novel. At the same time, like the other uh, the other leagues have done like weird stuff to you know change it up a little bit, and like they've tinkered a lot with the the dunk contest and a lot with you know the peripheral things around All Star Saturday, but uh, not in any kind of meaningful way with the game itself. Yeah, and and it does kind of come to the question of what do we even want out of an All Star game, especially now. I agree with you, Nate, that like there is a need to recognize and honor the best players, especially in the NBA, because it does seem like. NBA players are maybe more thin-skinned than, than other sports even because, you know, as we saw with all that flap about the the draft results not being released, nobody wanted to be recognized as the last the player old, taken. the only reason we wanted that. That was the only reason we wanted it, right. And that's an example. That That's maybe the first example that they've ever done of actually tinkering with the format of the big game itself. Uh, it was kind of well, there was, ditching there, there the was conference USA format. International, wasn't there? Did they ever do that? I mean, I remember they did that in hockey but i feel like nba has been east west forever and also the concept of eastern and western conferences has lost total meaning whatever meaning it once had even in in the nba um so then is the problem that the players just aren't giving enough of an effort do we need to kind of give them more of an incentive to play harder in the all-star game so i think maybe play defense my favorite stat is hakeem olajuwon once fouled out of an all-star, of an all-star game, game. Right? <laughs> and now literally there'll be like three or four fouls called all game all game or something and so yeah the guys from a combination of understanding how valuable their bodies are i think a greater sense of camaraderie maybe and shared mission um yeah look the all-star game if you said okay there is 10 million dollars on the line to the winning team um or the winning team gets to like cure cancer or something i think there would be <laughs> wait what effort. i don't know right the, the, the players themselves would would uh, <laughs> cure cancer, or they if there would were an to, to win. I mean, first of all, you, first of all, so thinking about like, I'm interested in the question of like, how would you design an all star lineup if the goal were actually to win a game? Because then maybe like a, a guy like Rudy Gobert who did not make the all star team, right? A guy like Rudy Gobert would maybe be extremely valuable in a lineup where you have four scorers, or Clay Thompson, who I do not think is one of the ten best players in the NBA. Is probably one of the ten most valuable guys if you actually wanted to have the best five man lineup because he gets a shot off so quickly and is so efficient. Um, and so, if you actually started to manage it as a real game, and there were incentives on the line, and guys went maybe not at full speed, but at at ninety percent speed instead of sixty percent, that would be an interesting basketball idea. I mean, the problem there is still ego and lineup and, and um, injury, just like whatever, and risk. injury because, yeah. um, like. Playing an NBA, playing NBA minutes is hard. It's hard on the body, like Nate said. But um, also for the coaches, it's fraught. Like who is who are your, your starters are locked in, but who's your crunch time lineup? Uh, what uh, what time are the subs coming in? Like what uh, what is the rotation? Who has tapped you on the shoulder earlier in the week and been like, "Hey man, like I kind of only want to play two minutes. What can you do for me?" Which, which I think Boogie Cousins did last season or whatever. And but there's usually someone like that also. And uh, so it's not just like this interest of. Uh, and, and baseball doesn't even do it like that hard of just like, oh, yeah, there's something real on the line and like we're going to, you know, have stakes. They stopped doing that a few years ago, at least, which yeah. was one of the dumbest things in, in sports history. Still, I think having the, mm-hmm. the World Series home field based on an all-star game. So at least the NBA hasn't done something like that yet. But basically, I think it's just with the way that lineups have to be juggled. Uh, that just adds an entire other level on top of 
uh, crunch time minutes, which are already played like maybe at seventy percent. Uh, it's it's higher than like the average like forty or fifty percent. Um, but I have a more uh, drastic. Idea. Yeah, I want to hear the drastic ones. My first question was just going to be: Is five on five even the right number to to play with, or should they? The NHL did a three on three kind of mini tournament, almost like a round robin thing, where they also do a draft uh, in in the way that the NBA adopted this season. But then they also have these division based three on three tournament things, which I I don't think anyone cares about divisions, but it is kind of a departure, at least from the sort of stale format of of just East versus west that was my idea so your idea yeah, my, is to do yeah, the my, my NHL style okay well right so uh at some point uh three on three basketball is coming to the olympics uh which i that's er- right yeah erroneously reported some years back but then was proven right um <laughs> it was a prediction not a report <laughs> um and uh that to me uh has a good chance or a better chance of of getting at least something that resembles competitive ball out of dudes because you played at 21 or you stay with twos and threes because, like, you can't really give NBA players ones and twos because, like, that just doesn't work. <laughs> They're just too good at threes. Right. Um, but, like, so you do play— Do you make it, take it? Uh, you figure that out. Yeah. Like, But uh, three on three and just, you know, play to whatever and, you know, just eight teams and, like, yeah, you could still pick teams or whatever um, is going to still get you a lot of half ass ball early on in the night, whatever. But at the end of the night— uh, in the final matchup or like in the, you know, final points to get to the final matchup, I feel like you're going to see guys tugging on their shorts and, you know, kind, yeah. kind of getting down and, you know, playing some real defense. Yeah. So uh, you have 24 all-stars, right? So divide them by three and it leads to eight teams. So you have like um, an eight team single elimination tournament. You have, I think you want roughly 10 minutes of like active clock time per game. I have a twist, though, mm-hmm. which I think people are going to really like. Which is, how do you pick the teams? You have kids pick the teams. <laughs> <laughs> you have an essay contest or something. Oh, my you God. You pick, like, eight kids uh, from different parts of the country and different walks of life, right? Um, and the kids pick the teams. So maybe some kid picks LeBron, and LeBron comes over, right? And LeBron's, like, whispering in his ear, don't take Kyrie Irving. And the kid <laughs> takes Kyrie Irving with the second pick. So, I mean, that would be, that's, like, the right element of, like, purposefulness plus randomness is to have like eight-year-olds right and, and, and yeah you maybe there would be more motivation not to let the the children down won't someone please think of the children oh but here's here's I mean, a we question. said we said mm-hmm. like if we'll cure, cure cancer we'll take it seriously before but if you saw how they responded to having to shoot threes for like kids scholarships like didn't take that too serious that's ah. well okay <laughs> here here's another thing uh, if we're cutting down the the number of players on each side, they'll never do this. But what about a one-on-one tournament? What if you had uh, – that would be the ultimate sort of ego-based. You're playing for you. And th- with these reps on the line, uh, especially since you know Kobe, I remember long ago, he, he kind of prided himself on like, okay – Maybe LeBron has passed, you know, me as the best player in the game, but I would still beat him one on one. That is sort of like the the alpha dogs mantra is that they will not be beaten in a one on one game. And so I think you would see incredibly hard play if it was just one big one on one tournament uh, of all these guys and whoever emerged as, you know, at the top of this Mad Max style <laughs> fight would be crowned the best one on one player in the game. Before we get into this, I needed a quick time out to tell the Kobe story like you, you have you seen the video of Kobe and Kyrie at Team USA camp no no Nate no so Kobe so Kobe and Kyrie you know talk, Kobe talked all kind of mess because Kobe was Kobe Bryant and uh 
and like Kobe was going to go to Duke if he'd gone to school and Kyrie obviously Duke kid and so Kyrie's in there and Kyrie's like I'll bust you one on one and Kobe's like no no and so like they put like I think they put like 50 grand or something crazy on it uh, at some point and it was like now it's like no 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 you'll get it you'll get it and Kyrie's just like looks at the camera it's like Kobe you gotta defend Kobe you gotta defend and so then, like later on, like the the Lakers play play the Cavs or whatever. Um, so, sometime later, and like Kobe just gives him like the the Kobe shake out on the uh, out on the wing, swish fade away. Down uh, the other, I don't think they were back to back plays or whatever, but they're cut together in the video, like as though they are, and like he just blocks the shit out of Kyrie, and it's like, oh yeah, yeah Kobe, um, old decrepit, can't really check anyone, but he made sure he got that one. Right. <laughs> no, look, one on one would be would be very fun. Um, I think I, I mean the key is just anything that kind of snaps out of that, like I said, that uncanny valley range where it's like really crappy basketball, despite all these stars being there. And so three on three, one on one, two on two, you know, any of that I think would be an improvement. And I would guess the league would will go there eventually, right? I mean, I don't know. The NHL's yeah, they, tried it, and it seems marginally more interesting. Yeah, it feels like they're this draft idea this year is sort of just the first step. I mean, if they're going to do the draft, they have to like televise, they have to televise it. it. Yeah, right. And that's probably the biggest thing that indicates that the one-on-one tournament will never, ever, ever happen in a million years. Is that the players' egos? If they're not even willing to televise the the all-star draft uh, at the risk of being picked last, they're not going to open themselves up to be shown to lose in the first round of a one-on-one tournament. Oh, I don't know, man. Like every big man in the league believes that he can beat Steph Curry one-on-one because you know he's just never getting that ball. I'm just going <laughs> to keep that ball forever. And like, good luck, like stopping me, like little Steph Curry. Like they'll back him down. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I don't like. I feel like there's enough ego in place where, like, on the other end of just like, I'm not losing in that first round. I don't care who you put across from me. You could also do weird stuff. This is a bad idea, but like, <laughs> you could give guys a choice to enter the three on three bracket or the one on one bracket. Yeah, right. So guys that really want to establish themselves, maybe into that pool, you invite some of the rising stars, um, and so the 24 all stars get their first pick between these two. And then, you know, the eight best rising stars form two groups. So anyway, there are ways to do it. You have one, eight players in the one-on-one tournament, and you have 24 in the three-on-three tournament, and they can pick. Yeah. Would, uh, you, would you do it like tennis, where, like, you can, you can double dip if you want to? Oh, sure, yeah. Play the sure. singles and the doubles? Who would double, who would double dip and risk injury the most? Well, yeah, I feel like Kobe. Well, first of all, who would LeBron uh, would uh, would he do the one on one or the LeBron three would on not three? do the one? on one I feel like he would only do the three on three. Yeah, LeBron has nothing to gain. He has nothing to gain. Uh, Carmelo would show up and ask if he could double dip. Melo likes being in these <laughs> games. Yeah, um, and like on on the process of ego and like whatever else. The last thing is, and I think this is it's been around for a long time, but uh, the Saturday competition, um, maybe not the three point contest, but I think maybe the dunk contest. Um, People, I think, just would be more excited about it if it were just limited to people on the all-star rosters. Of like, everyone loves the the Dominique MJ dunk contest, the Vince Carter, Tracy McGrady, uh, was Steve Francis in that one? Um, like the dunk contest when they were you know 
peppered with actual all-stars, even though I don't know if Tracy was an all-star yet in that season. But you know what I'm saying. Like when, when Tracy, Actually good players right. in the dunk contest, which we've been lacking for a long time. I mean, maybe it's better now than it was when like Fred Jones was winning the, the dunk contest uh, 15 years ago. But that's been a long-running complaint about the dunk contest is that it's it was even branded a few years ago right as like this more of a rising stars type of thing than an actual dunk contest. Right. Like Desmond Mason doesn't like put bus in chairs. But at the same time, uh, the three-point contest has had just a stroke of luck where a lot of the best players in the league are now like geared toward the three-pointer. So like Steph and Clay both being in it that year was like really exciting. Uh, whereas like when Jason Capono was going back to back, like that wasn't so fun because like when it was a specialized thing, was Damon Jones in it like for a yeah, couple years running? Da- it was Damon like, Jones, uh, Peja. Right. And Peja was fun. Peja, Peja was a legitimate yeah. all-star. Yeah. Peja was an MVP candidate for at least half of one season. Right, yeah. um, but why, why isn't Steph Curry in the three-point contest this year? I mean, I, I, it's not a terrible. I mean, like Clay, you got Paul George. It's not a terrible lineup, but like that bothers me. You know, Adam Silver should be like, we understand the dunk contest is like a little bit of a risk, but the three point contest is a shoot around, and like there's like very little long term risk. And like, why? I mean, everyone who the commissioner wants to play in that contest should play in that contest. Yeah, I mean, it's another kind of reputational thing, right? Like, once you gain a certain stature as the best shooter alive, I don't remember. Did Ray Allen ever um, skip after he uh, after he won a couple of contests? I feel like there has been a precedent of guys uh, skipping once, the, and and maybe it's under the guise of letting other people win too. You know, kind of give the other give the kids a chance. You know, I, I remember there was one one no, don't do that. Just like hold on to that thing until they you know, pry it away from you. But two. I think I remember one season where the Celtics sent Paul Pierce instead of Ray Allen. Is that right? Maybe, yeah, which is like the weirdest choice, I, I feel like. Unless Paul Pierce is able to kind of up fake a few times before getting the shot off and then lean into someone and make it, that that would be his version of the three-point contest. I mean, like, I'm just thinking about, like, using him in 2K. Like, I don't think you could get through, like, four racks with his, like, release <laughs> uh, and, like, still finish in time. Like, I mean, I just think, I wonder if Michael Jordan's infamous failure in the three-point contest still kind of haunts haunts people, right? That was pretty embarrassing. He's tied still for the lowest score in the triple contest of all time with Detlef Trimpf. <laughs> how many? How many uh, shots did he make? It, it was like six or so. It was six. pretty bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm YouTubing it as we speak. But that like lowered as a kid. That lowered my esteem for not just him as a basketball player, but as a person. Wow. Uh, there were other things that would eventually also lower your esteem for him as a person uh, <laughs> later. Okay, so uh, let's leave it there with the All-Star Game. But first, I wanted to also ask uh, you, the listener, what you think about fixing the All-Star Game. How would you change things if you could? Send us your ideas at podcast at 538.com, and we'll pick out the best to discuss on the show next week. All right, let's close out the episode with a segment we like to call Significant Digits. But before that, guys... What do you think I should have for dinner tonight? I mean, a lot of times a delicious home-cooked meal is a luxury. It sounds so simple, but with all the planning, shopping, and kitchen knowledge required, not to mention all the time, I'm lucky if I can even pull it off once a week. But now we can all get healthy, delicious meals on the table thanks to Sun Basket. Sunbasket delivers meal prep kits right to your door, making healthy cooking easy and convenient for any busy lifestyle. They use organic and clean ingredients, and the convenience can't be matched. They have 18 healthy options to choose from every week, which are suitable for many lifestyles. 
Sunbasket makes it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen, which in my case is next to none. Now you get more options than ever. Just go to the Sunbasket app and pick one of 18 weekly recipes. Easily cooked dishes like seared albacore tuna steaks with green beans and soft-cooked eggs or steaks with chimichurri and harissa-roasted sweet potatoes. And if you're looking for options, they have paleo, gluten-free, lean and clean, vegan, Mediterranean, family, and more. Sunbasket works with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh, organic produce and responsibly raised meats and seafood. Everything is pre-measured and easy to prep, so you can get a healthy and delicious meal on the table in about 30 minutes. There's something for every healthy journey and every busy lifestyle. So go to sunbasket.com slash the lab, that's one word, T-H-E-L-A-B, today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash the lab for $35 off. Sunbasket.com slash the lab. This is the time of the show where we discuss an attention-grabbing number from the NBA, whether it's an emerging trend, maybe it's just noise, maybe it's just interesting to us. This week's significant digit is a true small sample. It's 3-0. and That's the Cleveland Cavaliers record since they dismantled their roster at the trade deadline last week. That number includes a 22-point drubbing of the Boston Celtics in Boston and also an 8-point road win at Oklahoma City. Guys, was the trade deadline really all the Cavs needed to fix all of their myriad problems that we detailed on maybe two episodes ago? Yes. Um, <laughs> really? That's all it took? Just trade all those guys out, swap in new guys, I mean, and, I think and they're I, good? I think I said this last week, right? But the problem with the Cavs, and the Cavs are something in life that like, I feel like I've always been wrong on the direction of where the Cavs are headed. I was less optimistic than you guys about certainly the long-term upside of the trade. But like again, motivated Cavs versus demotivated Cavs is like a giant difference. It's like kind of in ELO terms, like a 1,700 ELO versus a 1,500 ELO. So one of the best teams in the league versus a team that really can play like a uh, very marginal, very league average team for long periods of a time. Um, and so, yeah, look, I mean, in the NBA, sample size, you don't need as many sample sizes. They beat two of the better teams in the league and beaten them fairly convincingly. And LeBron seems more motivated. And so, yeah, this is kind of a... A big deal. I would still contend that I'm not sure that they did much to help and maybe even hurt their upside. I'm not sure this team is constructed in a better way to beat Golden State or Houston. But, you know, but if you're going to get the final third of the season, LeBron being motivated, then that's a huge thing. I think there's also a very tangible benefit to uh, the additions they made. Like that, that's obvious already just looking at the, the two games that they've played. Nance in particular is something that they just didn't have in the middle. Tristan Thompson, like, used to give them a lot of, like, what he's given them now, but, uh, he's just slowed by injuries. Not the same player he was even in 2016. Um, Nance is just running around. He's rebounding offensively, killed the Thunder on the offensive boards. He looks better on pick and roll already than he did in Los Angeles. And he's just, like, going around making himself available on plays where, like, LeBron doesn't have to just, like, plow into the lane and figure something out. He's, like, you know, posting, uh, running around, reposting and getting the ball, like, doesn't always go in, but like it's some he's just active on the offensive end, activity that just hasn't been there for them in such a long time. That's why Clint Capella is like so transformative for for the Rockets, and like Stephen Adams is you know really really good, uh, but he's not you know as bouncy, he's not as lively, he's not making you like defenders think about like what's going on out there, so that they're not paying attention to the perimeter. And that's just something that the Cavs haven't had. Like they had Timothy Mozgov down there, they had like Channing Frye pretending they have. Kevin Love, like they haven't had a bouncy, you know, just like kind of dangerous guy in the middle like that 
in a long time. Yeah, those like energy, defense, and rebounding type guys, offensive, efficient players are sort of the cornerstones of championship runs, unless you're like the Warriors and can trot out. And even they, you know, JaVale was sort of a version of that uh, for and them Bell. last and year. And Bell now. And Bell now, right, exactly, Jordan Bell. And so Nance, if he continues playing this way, he'll be almost like what Tristan Thompson gave them two years ago, plus like a far more efficient offensive player. That's really useful. I mean, like, I think the way you win in the NBA is to have a core of, this is not very novel, right? But a core of two or three superstars and then surround them with role players that you can kind of plug and play a little bit, right? Um, Like, Cleveland is closer to having the back half of that kind of roster construction now. I just don't think that, like, the two and the three are good enough. I don't think Kevin Love, and I'm not sure who the third best player on the team is right now, you know, I'm not sure that that's a good enough superstar core even with LeBron, to really contend at the highest levels. But but we'll see. I mean, Cleveland, um, you know, our model, which kind of has, again, this long love-hate thing with the Cavs, um, has them up to the fourth most likely to win the NBA title already, so it didn't take too long, right, um, for them to recover there, especially since they're making Oklahoma City and Boston, who are two teams that are kind of on the fringe of plausible title contenders, look worse. Yeah, and so much of it, like you mentioned last week, Kyle, has also just been slotting out completely useless players at some of those role player slots and putting in competent players. And, and Clarkson and Hood, for instance, have a combined 70% true shooting percentage. Uh, and they, you know that is the role that as this shooter alongside LeBron that has been hit or miss, aside from maybe Korver on the Cavs so far. And then George Hill has been much more efficient than the sort of rotating cast of terrible point guards that they were using uh, off the bench uh, in the past. So just even slotting out bad players with pretty decent ones is enough to kind of uptick that team's performance in particular, I think. Right. It, it, it does help that Jordan Clarkson is shooting 500% for them since, since he came right. up. Like that that will, will do things for, for the plus minus. But no, like uh, George Hill is like shooting 37% as a cab from three, which is, you know, pretty good, but not the 45. Like it's a few games, so like whatever. Um, but but no, he's, he's another shooter who can, you know, play off the ball. Rodney Hood, though, is... A uh, guy who like is not like they're th- going to be their third superstar, or whatever. But he can be a third scorer or like a secondary primary scorer uh, because Kevin Love is um, kind of not the same player that he was with Rubio. He hasn't been that in Cleveland to where um, like they still post him sometimes, um, and they'll go through phases where they do it more and phases where they do it less. But already they're using uh, Rodney Hood in ways that like they use other players on the team. Um, they'll run him off flare screens or along the baseline and out onto the wing like they'd use Kyle Korver. They will like just throw him the ball as a trailing three-point shooter like they do for Kevin Love and some of the other shooters on the team. And uh, this is new. Uh, they're letting him, or not new for like him, but new for like the team this year. They're just giving him like eat up possessions, top of the key possessions like LeBron basically gets uh, that really no one else on the team like has been allowed to take consistently. And, like, he's eating them up like LeVon Hernandez. Like, he's just, you know, kind of replacement level at that. Um, but being able – well, not replacement level, but just, you know – He's a possession he's, he's an average. Uh, average. But, like, being able to eat up possessions at an average rate is a valuable thing for a team like the Cavs that, like, have trouble just kind of, you know, holding the line while LeBron is resting or while LeBron's not, like, centrally involved in a thing. And so, like, these are things that are, like, our tangible benefits where, yeah, there was just nothing before. 
Right, and uh, another stat that I wanted to point out from uh, ESPN Stats and Info Group is that LeBron is leading the NBA in assists per game with 12.3 since the trade deadline, and that 21 of the 52 attempts that teammates have taken off of LeBron James' passes in that span have been completely uncontested. They're classified as uncontested, and that's the most uh, of any passer in the league. So he is definitely seems more motivated and like he's playing a bigger role creating for these teammates that that are also making shots, which is a novel difference. Let me uh, let me do you one better. On those shots in that stretch, he is, his teammates are shooting on the passes to shooter. Uh, combined seventy nine point six effective field goal percentage. Pretty good. One other thing, though, with the Cavs, uh, and and maybe this touches on something you said earlier, Nate, was that. How much of this is sort of inevitable? Like, the Cavs blew up their roster at basically the absolute low point of their entire yeah. season. Like, it is, it was, could not be any worse, especially given the talent that they had. And it makes me think of how we've seen this in a lot of sports, this research that shows that when a team fires its coach, for instance, there's always this great kind of uptick in performance right after they fire the coach. And if you look at comparable situations in which a team doesn't fire the coach, it's pretty much the same uptick it's almost like regression to the mean is always going to happen at the low point of your season and that tends to be when teams also take really drastic measures like firing the coach or in this case trading away basically half the team yeah i mean if isaiah thomas had gone from sub 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 third basement to roughly league average or even a little bit worse than league average halfway between league average and replacement level um that would have made a huge difference Actually, he was really, really detrimental. And Derek Rose was really, really detrimental to that team. So just kind of getting those guys, I hate to say it, you know, getting those guys off the court is a big edge. You know, I'm not, I mean, LeBron had three, like, monster games, right? He got pulled early in the Boston game. But, like, basically, like, you know, averaging almost a triple-double, um, highest assist rate in the NBA over that three-game stretch. I mean, like, you know, if he's going to play like that, you're going to win most games and the question is a can he sustain it b um you know they're in a bit of a hole i guess they're kind of resigned now to the three seed but like they also have to be careful because they because they could slip to like the um the five or the six or the seven seed pretty easily if they kind of slough off parts of the regular season um you know i think it does hurt the calves and and that like there's like not like a natural secondary scorer on that team right now so i would love to see kind of after 10 games what the lineups without LeBron look like and I think they might be worse um but like but you know but look he seems happy um he's tweeting a lot and seems happy and like and like again like that's worth something let's plot the uh, social media activity for LeBron versus the Cavs record <laughs> over the yeah. season I mean like again like they're they're people also like job performance goes up when like you're not pissed at jay crowder all day and you know just running around just you know wishing you could you know, put isaiah in the dumpster <laughs> um so like yeah but like also uh just lineup performance goes up when there are not just gaping holes and like that's goes to stature of like derrick rose for you know how much like we trash him you know in the analytics community especially you know post-injury um like he was getting i think unfairly trashed before the injuries for not drawing free throws but so who's, um, so who's the favorite as of right now to represent the east in the nba finals well i had thought it was the celtics but then after that game the other day against the Cavs, that really kind of threw that upside down for me is hayward coming back well, I mean, that's mm-hmm. uh, d- d- should you want Hayward to come back if you are Boston and you're in a position where 
you know, working him back in and maybe rushing him and risking a potential future injury. And taking minutes away from Tatum do. and Brown. Right, exactly. You do, you, that's the position you don't need more help at. I mean, the Celtics have actually played kind of mediocrely since their gigantic winning streak at the start of the season. So their ELO rating is down to 15.57, which is actually lower than Cleveland's. Again, ELO really, really rates recent play heavily. Um, but I don't know. Why not Why not Toronto? No one likes Toronto. I know. No one ever. I listened to a lot of NBA podcasts recently in preparation for this two-week guest stint. Like, <laughs> no one talks about Toronto, who might win 60 games this year. Um, so did the Hawks. Yeah, fool me once, shame on you. But they're more athletic than the Hawks. They have a guy who is on the verge of being a superstar, uh, better coach, better... Well, I mean, I guess the Hawks were like a well-coached, kind of good system team, right? But, like, the Hawks with, like, a DeRozan-type star, and it's also a small sample size. I mean, again, our our playoff odds actually ding the Raptors a lot for not having playoff experience, but we still have them as the third most likely team to win a title after Houston and Golden State. And that's kind of impressive, right? Because that effect is pretty huge once you get into the playoffs and all of this is conditional on making the playoffs, but the Raptors have basically one hundred percent chance of making the playoffs. So it's all purely based on that, you know, sort of however good we think they are plus that postseason experience, you know, magic juju. Plus they're potentially at home for all three series. I mean if if they wear the rest of the season better than Boston would, for example. Um so I don't know. It just it's just weird to me. Like I I get it. Like there hasn't been fundamentally that much change to the roster, um, and kind of after the two stars there, you wonder you know where where else do you have? I mean, it's like a weird team. It's a weirdly constructed team. But like at some point, you know, usually a team like this would be getting more attention. I would say. I think fundamentally it comes down to the Lowry thing, where uh, Lowry has just played bad in the playoffs. He's play he's been bad. He's it's just. Uh, a tangible thing where like playoff Lowry is a real concern uh, for people in a way that like uh, Chris playoff Chris Paul really wasn't like Chris Paul gets like plays well gets better has gotten unlucky and it's you know a thing where like maybe he, sh- he needs to elevate his game and you know be transcendent that's not what it is for Kyle Lowry he's just like looked bad in a way that just makes you question whether it, once he's schemed against uh, and like this is over the course of a series over better the better defenses in the league if that or at least the conference uh if that's something that's going to hold up and like we've looked at this with Neil um he did a story a year or two ago on teams on which uh the best player is a point guard and uh like they have underperformed vastly uh they haven't won nearly as many playoffs rounds they haven't won nearly as many titles as you would expect them to based on like their their talent composition and uh, like further, I think like the further study we meant to do was whether like undersized point guards like Lowry, uh, a spe- who like manipulates space just fundamentally differently than a bigger point guard like Russ or uh, even like Steph Curry, who's six three, uh, can do. And uh, so that's a concern, like where both it's like the point guard position and specifically this point guard. Uh, and yeah, Demar is ascendant and uh, you know playing very well, but they're going to need a lot more out of Lowry than they've gotten. And I'm just like, that's the big point for people. I think. Do you want my Raptors secret plan? Yes. Sign Chris Bosh. <laughs> oh, okay. And then <laughs> return what? of Chris Bosh. I mean, plug him in the lineup, right? Play him like 16 minutes a game. Give you some like front court is scoring. He cleared medically to play. Chris Bosh would like to play in the NBA. I think he's made that pretty clear. Okay. Uh, I mean, like, the other thing is uh, all these teams are, we should be on the lookout for, for buyout stuff. 
and for for D League signings or G League signings, whatever um, overseas stuff. Obviously, Kendrick Perkins is rumored for the Cavs. I'm not even sure if that's uh, happening or still happen, whatever. Um, but uh, other guys like who uh, can make a difference are going to be available. Uh, Dwayne Dedman is a name that's come around that like would make sense for for the Raptors there, or whatever else. Uh, so there's still uh, the period where these rosters might not be locked down in the way that uh, you know we're talking about them. Yeah, and I think uh, maybe the biggest takeaway of all of this is just that the Eastern Conference playoffs are going to be really fun this year. Uh, and the playoffs in general seem like they're going to be more fun than maybe the past couple years, but especially in the East. I, I don't think any of us have really any idea who uh, is, is a strong favorite to come out. And that makes things good uh, for, for basketball fans such as ourselves. All right, so that'll do it for this week's show. Thanks again to Nate for pinch-hitting for Chris this week. Our podcast producers are, as always, Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we are also there, whether it's the Listen tab of the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Wherever you find the program, be sure to review and rate it. It helps others discover the show. For Kyle and Nate, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.